Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Mike Volkov brings 35 years of legal experience. Matt Kelly is the founder and editor of Radical Compliance. Jay Rosen is Mr. Monitor who knows his way around the culture of compliance. And Jonathan Armstrong, a partner at Cordery Compliance in London, rounds out this top group of compliance practitioners. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This episode of Everything Compliance, Jonathan Armstrong takes us through the current fight against the international scourge of modern slavery. He rants about the BBC's non-reporting on Jennifer R. Curry. Jonathan Marks talks about the endemic corruption in esports, lack of a regulatory body to address this issue. Mark shouts out to FBI Special Agent Carrie Harney. Mike Volkoff talks about the different perspectives on risk management from the GC and CCO. Volkoff shouts out to federal prosecutors who've been handling the Matt Geitz investigation. Kelly discusses the corporate responses or lack thereto of the state of Georgia voter suppression law. Kelly shouts out to Danielle Frazier. Everything Compliance. Uh, today we have Jonathan Armstrong, Matt Kelly, Mike Volkoff, and Jonathan Marks will be dropping in to join us as well. Gentlemen, uh, happy Good Friday. And to you. Thank you, And to you. And to you. And to uh, all our listeners. Mr. Armstrong, what is on your mind these days? Well, I've, I've got something uh, quite topical. Many of you who have UK operations will have had these somewhat aggressive letters arrive to your uh, UK registered office sent from the UK government, an official looking letter telling you that you've got to file a uh, uh, some uh, details with the UK Modern Slavery Registry by April 9th, and that deadline is obviously pretty close. And for many organizations, that's come completely out of the blue. So I thought I'd explain what that's about and whether the uh, deadline of uh, uh, April the 9th is a, is a hard one or not. So first of all, the UK, obviously, and we've talked about this on these podcasts before, I think genuinely cares about slavery and particularly so-called modern slavery. It's a misnomer because there ain't anything modern about it. It's still holding people captive and against their will. And that's as old as uh, the Roman Empire, if not before. And the UK, I think, rightly, is ashamed of its past uh, in uh, and its connections with the slave trade. And there has been a move uh, in the past six, seven, eight years to try and correct that again. The UK, obviously, uh, whilst it had a, a despicable role in the slave trade, was also, I think, the first uh, nation to ban slavery and had a crusade in the 1800s led by people like William Wilberforce to stamp out slavery across the world, but the job's only half done. And we see slaves both uh, in foreign climes and in nail bars and car washers and beauty salons uh, 200, 300, 400 yards away from the places that we live and work. 
And the UK has been on something of a crusade again since uh, November uh, against slavery and particularly against the uh, 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 slavery in the Xinjiang region of China and particularly those Uyghur Muslims who are, uh, it seems, held in an abject condition. And in October, the, uh, a UK parliamentary commission or committee uh, summoned a number of large organisations, uh, including, for example, the Disney Corporation, to attend a parliamentary hearing on November 5th. And some of those summonses were sent as a result of inaccurate information that had been collected from uh, Chinese corporations. Now, some of the research in this area is a, a bit odd, to say the least. For example, some of the research reports say you cannot trust anything that Chinese manufacturers say, uh, and the following businesses use Chinese suppliers. And how do we know that? Because we've got the word of the Chinese manufacturers for that. So, a lot of the arguments for, from the uh, activists and researchers are somewhat circular, but there is no doubt a problem with uh, Chinese uh, supply chains. And uh, uh, the uh, parliamentary committee uh, recently made a number of recommendations in its report. And one of those recommendations was that sanctions be stepped up against the officials in Xinjiang who were thought to be behind some of these uh, atrocities. And the UK uh, was part of a consensus in bringing sanctions, which involved uh, the US and the EU. And as a result of those sanctions, some of the MPs who'd written this parliamentary report and some of the people who were involved in research which led to the parliamentary report were then sanctioned by China as a retaliatory move. Now, just as um, the, uh, those actions were somewhat predictable, it was also entirely predictable that sanctioning people like that does not silence them. It spurs them into more action. And that's partly why we've got the spotlight on this modern slavery register, which was only just recently launched, and I think had few people sign up to it. It's, it's voluntary at this stage. It may become mandatory. And it's connected to UK modern slavery law, which has been in for, uh, for five years or so now, but with few teeth. And these letters that people have got seem to imply that registration is mandatory and it must be done by uh, April 9th. Uh, that isn't the case, but uh, as a result of those letters, the register has gone from uh, only government entities, more or less, having signed up to uh, almost, uh, so well over 4,000 corporations having signed up in about 10 days. And it either tells you that people obey any letter that comes from government, whether it's got legal force or not, or it tells you 
that more than 4,000 corporations are convinced that they're squeaky clean on slavery and want to shout that out to the world, or uh, that they are prepared to put what you might call partial statements out to say, we've done some stuff, but we're not anyway through the work. And this is quite consequential for a lot of corporations because you'd expect somebody senior to sign the statement. And a lot of CEOs seem to have signed statements to say that there is no slavery in their supply chains. And I think that's a fairly incredible statement for any CEO of a large corporation to make. You know, how does he know? We know, for example, that if you source goods and materials from some parts of the world, you can't rely on audits because auditors can't get in. Or in some parts of the world, uh, Turkey, for example, I'm told that the, that the cost of doing something correct is about 100 times the cost of bribing somebody to say you've done it correctly. So in these parts of the world where supply chains hit that are prone to corruption, I think it's a very brave CEO that's prepared to sign off to say that no sla slavery exists in their supply chain. And it seems to me that this is going to be uh, a really big issue on everybody's agenda in the next few months. I know that in the US, for example, there's uh, also very strong protest groups. There's a lot of boycotting on both sides. H&M, for example, were initially boycotted, or there was a move to boycott H&M products uh, in the UK until they were sanctioned by the Chinese government. And their sales, their sentiments gone up for H&M on the basis of anybody who's an enemy of China must therefore be uh, somebody we should shop from, n n not the obverse. And the Chinese authorities have done all sorts of uh, things to try and uh, promote a boycott of H&M in China. For example, I, I understand taking the locations of H&M stores off maps so you can't order a taxi to get there because the taxi drivers uh, can't find their premises, etc., etc. So uh, all of this, I think, is an emerging topic at the moment. The deadline of the 9th of April doesn't have any legal basis at all. It's a slightly interesting exercise that government is sort of pretending they have the power to do something when they don't. But organizations still need to take slavery very seriously, firstly, because it's the right thing to do, secondly, because the compliance obligations are increasing, and thirdly, because pressure group activity is intense in this area and people are voting with their feet. Jonathan, where does a compliance officer or other corporate uh, official, a C-suite executive, where would you suggest they start? Would they audit their supply chain? Would they go down the hall and see, are we, are we making payments to nefarious characters? If someone really wanted to see, one, are we in compliance, or two, even set up a program to be in compliance, where do you suggest they start? I think awareness is important from the from the very start. So, uh, so that's going to be uh, 
awareness uh, with your suppliers. It's going to be contractual obligations on uh, suppliers as well. Awareness for your own people. As I've said, slaves are amongst us as well as in foreign countries. So how would you spot a slave in the, I don't know, the garage that services your corporate vehicles? You've got to invest in that education, I think. Auditing, I think, is bound to be part of it with the caveats that some countries are almost inauditable. So you've got to think whether they're countries that you should be in at all. And that's not as easy as you think. You know, the parliamentary inquiry heard evidence relating to Leicester in the UK, where audits were incredibly difficult because of the close-knit nature of that community and their ability to disguise where the goods were actually being created. So there are no quick fix answers. For anybody who is interested, if they look at, uh, you could look at the Caudry website, for example, you could look at the UK government's modern slavery unit website, where there are six things that it suggests that you might want to cover in your modern slavery statement. Of course, the goal isn't just to make a statement, it's to improve year on year uh, as well. Uh, but those six uh, uh, areas will at least be, I think, a good start for any program. And that, coupled with awareness, at least will start people off on their journey. Jonathan Marks, do you have a question for Jonathan Armstrong? I guess my question for Jonathan is with regards to, you know, slavery and all the things that you, you spoke about. You know, how sensitive do you think organizations are right now to deal with those issues? I, I recall war working on a matter probably about six or seven years ago that involved some of this. And what I found to be more disturbing was that I, I believe the organization knew about it, but sort of turned a blind eye. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are with regards to all of this. And, you know, um, you know, and, and, and we all know about the, the public, you know, the public company issues, but. I'm just worried about the private corporations as well, globally. Yeah. I think it's a great question, and I think awareness wasn't very good. So I can recall maybe two years ago, there was an issue with a large London law firm, and it turned out that all of their security guards uh, were held in a position of slavery. They're all from the same village in Asia, and their relatives, uh, it seemed, were... Um, their relatives were still home and they were told to work and their passports were confiscated and they're sitting on the reception desk of a well-known large law firm. And presumably the law firm didn't recognize that the, the people guarding their premises were captives. And that obviously has all sorts of ramifications, not only slavery, but also if these people are loyal to the gang master rather than the people they're meant to be, people and premises they're meant to be protecting. Then there are all sorts of issues around information security. The law firm's obviously handling highly sensitive deals. And the fact that the people on the front desk are compromised means that all of the data in the building is compromised as well. And I think 
a lot of it has been an awareness issue. You know, there's this great case study about one of the uh, American airlines who started training stewardesses in how to spot people on planes that were held in, in conditions of slavery or were being trafficked. And they've done a great job, you know, uh, and I believe most cabin crew in the US now have training on this. And And, and once you can spot the signs, you do have concerns about people you interact with uh, on, on a daily basis. You know, on on trains, as I've said, in car washes, in nail bars, et cetera, et cetera. And I think some of us have to rethink our personal behaviors as well as our corporate behaviors. And awareness isn't where it should be, Jonathan. Matt Kelly, what is on your mind? Well, I have been writing, in fact, just before we got on here, about uh, corporate America's latest ethics and politics headache, which is this voter suppression law in Georgia, which has immediately blown up into the face of uh, numerous large companies that are headquartered in Georgia. And I am thinking about it because this is just, I think, a small taste of what is about to come for a lot of businesses. Uh, This is not necessarily a corporate compliance issue per se, or internal control or internal audit, but really getting to the ethical values that corporations put up on their mission statement, they talk about all the time, and now we have our political climate, which is really going to test uh, how much corporations are trying to put those ethics into practice and hold true to their words. Um, So here's what's going on, is that on March 25th, Georgia, uh, down south, they enacted this voter suppression law. Uh, It was passed under the guise of voter integrity, which is a lie. Uh, There is no problem with the integrity of the votes in Georgia. The problem for white conservative lawmakers in Georgia was that the urban and diverse uh, groups down in Georgia actually voted for President Biden in November and then sent two Democratic senators to Congress, which, of course, white conservatives in Georgia said, we can't have that. Let's knock it off. Let's pass this voter suppression bill, which they did. It is now the law in Georgia. Um, What really intrigued me first was the CEO of Delta, Ed Bastian, who and Delta is headquartered in Atlanta. It is, I think, the largest private employer in the state of Georgia. If it isn't, it's one of the largest employers in Georgia. Uh, The day after they passed the law, he put out this wishy-washy statement that basically said we worked with the legislators, we got rid of some of the really bad stuff, we're happy that we made such good progress, thank you and good night. And nobody stood up for that. Uh, Like Nobody stood for it. Uh, It really, he was left on the back foot because almost immediately many others in social media started saying corporations should have done more. The biggest corporations in Georgia are Home Depot, Coca-Cola, Uh, Delta, UPS. And so what has happened so far is that the black CEOs of America, uh, they signed an open letter earlier this week, about 72 of them, including the CEO of Merck and the former CEO of American Express, who seem to be the leaders of this. um, I think it's called Black Votes Matter movement, if I have it right. But the black CEOs are basically saying it is time for corporate America to get off the sidelines 
either you are in favor of democracy and equal protection under the law, or you're not. The Republican Party has clearly said they're not, but corporations have to say that they are because actually equality and fairness and uh, support for democracy are a lot of the values that they either profess or the rest of America, uh, the Democratic majority that uh, put President Biden into power, they're the ones who are supporting these open standards very much against what the Republicans are trying to do. And I just I have been amazed at how Delta in particular mishandled this, because once everybody kind of woke up several days later to the menace that this law is in Georgia, well, then Delta put out a brand new statement where he's like, well, this is all based on a lie and this was terrible and we stand up against these things. And all of that was good for Ed Bastian to say he just should have said it maybe the first time around instead of the second time around. Uh, he claimed in the second time around that he had not fully understood what Georgia lawmakers were doing. I don't believe that. I think that probably, like many CEOs, he was just hoping this difficult issue, the company wouldn't have to take a strong stand on. I don't think that is going to be a, a lot of uh, room for that kind of excuse anymore. Um so we've already seen, I think it is the Atlanta Falcons and the Atlanta Hawks have both said that they're opposed to these laws. Um, there is talk that the Major League Baseball might move its all-star game later this year out Atlanta and Georgia to somewhere else. Um, like we've seen all of this before. We have, when you think about it. Uh, it was the anti-trans uh, uh, bill in North Carolina, I think it was. There was another one in Indiana where you know they state lawmakers pass these bills, uh, somehow oppressing some groups socially, and then everybody gets the up in arms and corporations have to say that we're against this, and then the lawmakers have retreated so far. I'll be curious to see if we have this dynamic play out again with these new voter suppression laws, especially because even if Ed Bastian and his flim-flam excuse that we didn't understand what was in the law in Georgia the first time, if we did, we would have been against it. Okay, even if that's true, well, we have new voter suppression laws in Texas. We have them coming in Arizona. We have them coming in, I believe it is in Florida and in Pennsylvania. You have them everywhere. There are currently 43 states that have Republicans pushing some sort of voter suppression law. Um, and this is really going to leave corporations like it's a difficult spot. I don't deny that. But you have a minority of people who are supporting this wackadoo Republican stance now where this is what I had worried about since Donald Trump lost in November was that the principles of Trumpism would rather than go away like they should have. They didn't. They infected the whole Republican Party. And now we have this nonsense of these voter suppression laws. I don't know what a lot of the state legislators are going to come up with next. But how do you as a corporation trying to serve all people at all times deal with this small minority of people now who have just left American democracy on the side of the road? How are you supposed to swim with the rest of us who are generally opposed to voter suppression? They do actually like President Biden. They voted for President Biden. Most of the economic activity in the country comes from congressional districts that support Democrats in Congress and support uh, Joe Biden. And they actually voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. How do you do that? How do you manage that if you're a corporation? I don't have a good answer other than to firmly tell Republicans we oppose this and say it from the start. 
not after they do something stupid, do it before. Um, but this is going to be a very difficult period. And I am curious to see how many corporations actually will stand up and kind of put their money where their mouth is about ethical values. Occasionally, guys, this stuff actually does matter. And uh, I think this is going to be one of those periods. Here we are. Matt, other than perhaps trying to stay aware of what's going on in the political winds and following um, legislative debates, should a compliance function, a comms function, or other corporate function really be prepared to uh, respond in a moment's notice? Or uh, I almost sense from you, you need to have a longer-term plan, which might include early statements, which might include engagement, which might include companies talking about the diverse nature of their workforces and why certain legislation might be antithetical to the corporate mission in not only their home state, but across the United States, or, or is it really something else? I mean, yes and no. I like. Do you need a long-term plan as a CEO to say we support democracy and equal protection under the law and voter fairness? I mean, no, you don't need a plan for that. That should be instinct for Pete's sake. Come on. Um, at the same time, you know, should you be monitoring what is going on in state capitals? Yes. But I would say that is why most large companies do have some sort of vice president of legislative affairs or something like that. And if a CEO really does not know that there is a hot button legislative issue coming along that might put us in a difficult spot and we need to respond to it. If you don't know that, then find your VP of legislative affairs and fire that person for not doing their job, which is to brief the CEO and understand what the CEO wants and then try and do something to steer the legislation in the direction the company likes. That's not news either. Companies have done that for hundreds of years. Um, so it's just, there's a certain bit of eye rolling here that I don't think it is very hard to know what the right thing to do is. It's going to be hard to say that out loud because you will inevitably get about 30% of the population who are going to screech and clatter that you are politicizing your corporate views. Yeah, okay. I mean, support for democracy is a political view. Okay, and you're going to stand behind it. I don't see what the big deal would be there. And I don't think most other Americans would. But you got the 30 percent who are really going to have a big problem with it and you're still going to have to deal with them. Um, so, like I said, I don't know that this is a corporate compliance issue per se. It's I don't know if you want to call it a mishmash of regulatory affairs and you know basic corporate ethics uh, in CEO leadership. It's probably in there somewhere. I just I do think that a lot of CEOs might need to get over themselves that this isn't something you're going to be able to avoid. You are going to have to take a difficult stance on it and it's going to have to take it publicly. Um, and, you know, yes, this storm ultimately, I think, will pass bigger whether the storm will recede because it's only about 30 to 35 percent of the population that really supports these extremist Trumpist views. But we are where we are. And uh, like I said, you know, OK, we've done it in Georgia. I suspect we haven't heard the last of how the Georgia law is going to stand or go into effect or be amended or something like that. But it was only the first. And if you really say the atrocious, then turn your focus to Texas and Arizona because they're next and then go on after that. And corporations are going to have to think about this. Mike Volkoff, what is on your mind? You're on mute. 
My apologies. My apologies. Um, I think uh, this kind of dovetails with uh, the earlier discussion, both by Jonathan uh, and Matt, in that what, um, and I've been writing about this lately in terms of risk management. And uh, we, um, we've been through, let's say, the pandemic, which sort of exposed uh, risk management in terms of planning uh, and the ability of companies to deal with disruptions. And I think um, what I've been trying to point out is that there's a pretty good risk manager in every company, and that's your chief compliance officer. Uh, that's your chief ethics officer who are good at uh, risk management. Like they spend some time, and I'm being a little facetious, with risk prioritization, risk um, understanding risks, how to mitigate risks. And yet uh, we also see this enterprise risk management function, which compliance is lucky to get involved in, but often, oftentimes uh, does not have a big seat at the table. And I think if there's anything we learned through this pandemic is that compliance should be at that table. And also, as people are trying to develop more sophisticated risk management systems, we also see what I think is kind of interesting. Suddenly, companies are elevating the risk management function itself within their organization. And uh, this, to me, is, is great. It's a welcome sort of development. But uh, I kind of feel that ethics and compliance uh, roles and professionals are not getting uh, sort of the, their due in that process. And if there's anybody that's good in terms of having line of sight across an organization, developing risk management tools, it's them. But I also want to uh, sort of lead into a little bit more of a discussion that follows Jonathan and Matt, and that is there's a great movement going on now. And that is the ESG movement, which, by the way, has become so, you know, familiar and sort of the hot button issue that uh, people don't even have to spell out what ESG, you know, actually stands for. And uh, I think that what uh, Jonathan is talking about in terms of slavery, Matt's talking about in terms of social justice, these are issues that companies are trying to take a uh, sort of more of a look at. And I think it's a welcome development. And I'll tell you why, because I think it's a reflection of the uh, sort of the failure of our political system to deal with many of these issues because we're at loggerheads with each other and very little's getting done in the way that people really are demanding. So now it's kind of like all the stakeholders, everybody is going back to ESG and demanding companies to deal with some of these problems, like our supply chain, our supply chain audits, like the fact that, you know, there was an organ, uh, even this week, there was uh, a drive to start a boycott of Coca-Cola. And I think, you know, these are real affirmative statements that companies don't exist in a vacuum. And, and it's so funny to read some of the early ESG articles now about how do you implement an ESG system? How do you even address it? Well, you think companies have ever had to deal with something like this before? Let me remind them about compliance. Compliance was what it was the hot button issue was, how do you implement it? Well, I've got a great idea. Let's make everybody a stakeholder and an owner within the company. And suddenly ESG people are saying, we've got a great idea. You should make every the business own part of this. And I'm watching this and saying, we've heard this before. 
So I think the demand for what I would call a greater responsibility, modern slavery act is certainly something important. The political implications of what companies are doing and frankly giving corporate donations to Republicans in Georgia is suddenly become a hot bit, uh, button issue. So all of this is to say uh, risk has become a broader sort of issue and context, obviously given the pandemic. Supply chain audits, by the way, was already uh, a big hot button issue with conflict minerals. And then we saw OFAC sanctions uh, guidance, compliance guidance, uh, mandating uh, some kind of supply chain audits. But then you see companies who live in this world, like I'll never forget all the apparel companies who you know, rely on labor from Bangladesh or Malaysia, they have massive sustainability offices. And those offices are supposed to go around and they audit on the ground and they get into these, you know, unlike some of the areas in, in China that Jonathan was mentioning, uh, they get into these areas and they supposedly are managing the risk. Uh, given uh, that fact. So all of these broad uh, themes, I think, are really playing uh, into, a, I think, a, 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 what's going to be a transformative type of corporate governance change. And uh, I think it's all for the good uh, in the end. But if we could only get Boris Johnson and our political system over here to be a little bit more collaborative and work a little bit better, maybe uh, maybe the governments could fill in uh, for some of the efforts as well. Uh, Jonathan Marks, do you have a question or comment for Mr. Volkov? Yeah, I, I want to know if the regulators are going to start focusing on accurate financial reporting. I mean, ESG is nice. I agree with it. But I think we have bigger issues. I think there's there's a lot of other things that we need to be aware of, especially in this environment, like financial statement fraud, revenue recognition, things like that. I keep seeing all the enforcement releases. Um, I see all the accounting pronouncements coming out that that are concerning people. And so I'm wondering whether, you know, this is nice, but, you know, what, are we really focusing on the right things? Well, that that you raise a great question because it's funny. I've been dealing with the SEC on a couple of matters for clients. And, you know, there's a whole cyber office, obviously. There's a whole, uh, you know, disclosure office. And uh, they're ramping up for the kind of disclosures we're going to see about climate change and cybersecurity. Uh, and they're, they're getting ready to land on a bunch of companies in those areas. But on the other hand, you know, where's the analytics? Uh, where are the big uh, fraud cases? And I mean, to be honest, Jonathan, you know, name me the biggest fraud case we've had in terms of uh, financial fraud. Uh, in financial reporting, we know it's out there, but mm -hmm. I haven't seen. Have you? I mean, we we've seen nothing that's come close to any of our. I mean, I I guess the the one that I know about is um, the apparel company, the athletic uh, company. I forgot the based Under in Armour. Baltimore. Yeah, that's the last one that I've heard about. Have you heard of any other ones? No, but I mean, you know, obviously I can't talk about them for confidentiality reasons. But I mean, we are working on a few. But it's it's just mind numbing to me that the same issues, the same the same prevailing issues year after year after year after year are just, you know, they're they're just they're not handled appropriately. Um, you know, rev rec is 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 just constant. And in the pressure cooker environment that we had from last year with regard to COVID 
and the fact that, you know, people are dealing with different things, they're trying to make up, you know, you know, one of the enemies of internal controls is incentives and incentive compensation. Mm -hmm. You know, I wonder if everyone's really focusing in on that. And for people that lost last year or try to maintain what they had, you know, I would imagine like the analytics programs with regards to trends and earnings and things like that. I think, you know, um, what do we say? Um, something about if, uh, you know, if you don't, if you don't take a look at your risk in 2021, 2022 is going to be a zoo. I think that's really what's going to happen. And, um, you know, I, again, I don't, I, I think ESG is something, but I, I was involved in the, initially in the social responsibility reform back in 2007. And I was on the front cover of the first magazine that came out and we talked about all these issues, but you know, the threat landscapes that are around now with regards to what we're dealing with in this particular economy, it's just pretty interesting. And I, 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 just, I just don't know. I just Jonathan, don't know. Jonathan I, I mean, I remember you on the cover of GQ, but I never saw you on the cover of that magazine. Well, um, I, could, I, I, could show, I could show it to you if you'd like. Okay, but I mean, I, I saw you on GQ. But you know what? The other point, though, on the SEC front is I thought they had a new sort of analytics approach to identifying potential financial fraud, and they had employed this for a while. And I thought that that had led to various investigations. But what it sounds to me like you're saying is that hasn't resulted in any sort of real um, results or something. Is that what you're... There's a couple that I know of and a few that I can't talk about, but, you know, I'm just wondering why there aren't more. And maybe there are, and they haven't really come to light yet. You know, I know people were scrambling at the end of the year to get all their SEC issues resolved before, you know, the new administration came in. I just wonder, you know, how many the SEC did wind up settling and how many carried over and how many new cases are going to really happen in in 2021. Um, I think it's going to be a boon year. I think you're going to see stuff that we haven't seen before. But I agree with you, Mike. There hasn't been a lot of accounting fraud cases that you would look at and say, ah, you know, other than Under Armour and a few others. Yeah. Mr. Armstrong, do you have a comment or question for Mr. Volkov? Yeah, I agree with both of you, actually. I, I, I think we're certainly seeing more bad behavior across our desk. And I think that there's a lot of, if you like, legacy bad behavior from the pandemic, uh, which is uh, starting to get exposed. And I think people obviously feel braver doing stuff in their own home, uh, partly because they've got you know, a lot more time to do whatever bad thing they're doing, and partly because there's nobody's watching over their shoulder and asking them what they're up to. And so the stuff we're seeing already is people like extracting contact lists for whatever purpose or whatever, but I'm sure they're committing bigger frauds as well and they're just waiting to be discovered. And then I had a comment really on on Mike's piece. So last year I interviewed Richard Levick and I jumped up because the, one of the benefits of being at home is you can you can get the books off the shelf and I'd recommend these books by Richard Levick to people. And he's, um, he's a, a, a sort of PR guru in the US, one of the go-to crisis management guys. And, and his theory is that basically people are having to do more stuff around ESG, Black Lives Matters, et cetera, et cetera, because there have been governments on both sides of the channel that haven't cared about that as much as they should have done. So, for example, corporations are getting more involved in our environmental issues because until recently you had a president 
that didn't. And they were getting more involved in uh, social responsibility because it was perceived that you had a president who didn't. And so what he, his theory is that if you like, corporations are being forced to fill that void left by governments getting out of the stuff they should be having an opinion on. I don't know if you had a view on that, Mike. Well, that, that I mean, here, here to that, it's a, it's a frustration with the political system. And the fact is that now shareholders, stakeholders, or the general public now is demanding a greater responsibility and for companies to fill this in. If the government was doing a good job of regulation in this area, we would see less demand for this. I'm convinced of that because the government would be mandating certain behaviors. They would be mandating, uh, you know, environmental uh, controls. And I think what what's going on in the country here, just to you know, make it an even bigger political discussion, is that the, the majority will of the people is being frustrated by a system right now that is not based on uh, representing the majority. Uh, you just go down every polling issue where, you know, the people want certain legislation, but it doesn't go through the system because the way the system is designed here and it needs to be reformed in that sense. So where do people go? They go to their workplace, and they start to demand, okay, you've got money, you've got a position, you've got a place, uh, you know, a megaphone, and we want you to do this. What's interesting to me, though, is, and I just don't have the British, you know, perspective because we're not we're not elevated enough. But the in terms of modern slavery, look, you, you guys were leaders on that. The British government was the leader on that issue, and they brought it and scared the Americans about it. You know, why aren't you dealing with this? And what I'm wondering is, what is it in, in the UK that leads companies to, you know, or setting up their own corporate registry, you know, the open corporates? I mean, it took us, you know, legislation going through uh, this past year to even get to the concept. You know, we were a money laundering haven on, uh, and still are for many reasons. But it seems to me like people are leading outside of us or within us. It's people are demanding that somebody take responsibility. So, I mean, I, I, I think it's an interesting development, and I think we're going to see more of it. Mike, if I can just follow up on your point, um, I do think you're, what you had said about the government isn't addressing these issues, so people are bringing it into the corporate workforce and having it try to address these things there. That is yeah. exactly what the Edelman Trust Barometer has been saying for several years now that uh, around the world, and especially in the United States, employees want their companies to take longer, stronger issue stances on difficult social issues. Uh, and to your point about how this is happening because the will of the majority is being thwarted, uh, which is true, uh, on many different issues. But I think now actually what we're seeing with, say, the voter suppression laws to bring it back there, it is no longer just the case that what the majority wants isn't happening, but now what the minority wants is getting forced through. Exactly. A, that's a great dysfunctional point. political system. And I can't, that's why the, the heat that CEOs already, like they didn't like to be in this position when nothing was getting done, but now bad stuff is the only thing that's getting done. Like that puts them in all the worst position. And I don't know what the answer is, but that's exactly the dynamic here. But that's a great point when you have the minority actually not just frustrating it, 
but they're they're absolutely putting in place what they want against the will of the majority. That's a that I, I couldn't agree more. One quick aside: I went to a high school or junior high school with Rick Levick, and his transformation, Jonathan, into a guru. Uh, I've always told him that if I tell the truth about him, his reputation will go right downhill, okay? Because I saw where he came from. I saw his roots, but he's uh, he's actually a friend of mine. But he, oh, really? He, yeah, and he he's very highly regarded. And, uh, you know, uh, but uh, but if you saw the real Rick Levick, uh, he didn't speak with the same affect as what I always tell him. <laughs> so I will just warn you, Mr. Volkoff. If you I know go down that road. I was roommates <laughs> in college with Mike's roommate in college. Yeah, that was it. Would not be pretty. <laughs> no, that, I and and the problem is, if I brought like defamation actions, he'd have a good defense, which is the truth. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so with that, well, Jonathan, thanks all to invite for inviting me to the final podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we don't have we don't have uh, any insurance on this, do we, Tom? Everything compliance needs an insurance policy. <laughs> the Compliance yeah. Podcast Network has full insurance. <laughs> uh, risk management at its finest. Jonathan Marks, what is on your mind? Well, before we get to that, since it's the Rich Levick show, I will tell you that he's an absolute mensch. Um, I reached out to him. I met him about ten years ago. And I had a couple of issues and I never, I, he said, if you ever need anything, call me. And I've called him several times and he's always come, you know, loaded with bear and willing to help. So, you know, just a really nice human being and very knowledgeable in his space. So, you know, Rich, if you're listening, thanks very much. You know, your fan club's online. Um, uh, well, that, wait, wait, what's the, what's the kickback here? That's all I want to know. What's your kickback on this? There's no kickback. I, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Always with an angle with bribery and corruption. I love it. <laughs> yeah, you know how to bribe, Jonathan. Yeah, there you go. We know it better than anyone, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think um, for full disclosure, the gift the books were a gift. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I will disclose off now. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. All right. So um, you know, on the on the ethics theme here, I, there was an article this week that one of my friends brought to my attention, which was uh, Chinese police arrested. You know, these ten folks, and I'll get into this. They called themselves Chicken Drumstick, which is kind of interesting, and they were connected to an esports or a video game cheating ring, <laughs> and and these guys made. Um, there's varying reports depending on what you read, but. For, for illustrative purposes, $100 million in profit. And, um, you know, I, I am not a gamer, but I did some research on this. And, you know, eSports, for those of you that don't know, it's a multiplayer video game uh, played competitively for spectators. And I didn't even know this, that there were college programs, you know, eSports college programs. So more than 50 colleges, based on some of the information I look, have varsity esport programs, and they're actually governed. They have, there's a governing association related to all these called the National Association of Collegiate Esports, or NACE. Um, and you know these championships are played, uh, pay thousands of dollars in prize money, which is put towards the scholarship of winners. So it started me to think about really looking into this matter. And basically what these folks did was they sold subscriptions to hacks or cheats, you know, to these games. And, um, you know, like I said, it, 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 I started to look at this from an ethical perspective. And it reminded me of a presentation that I did probably about 15 or 
10 or 15 years ago. And there were some pretty alarming statistics that, um, that, I, uh, that I rattled off in this presentation. So I just thought it'd be appropriate to share them today because they're kind of interesting. And, you know, I think it, it will make for some good discussion. So of 4,000 high school students with A and B averages, 75% admit to cheating to get ahead. 92% of those said they cheated and were never caught. And you can look at my blog post for the references there. But more importantly than that, almost 80% of college students admit to cheating at least once. There was a junior achievement survey that found 80% of teens believe they were prepared to make ethical decisions when entering the workplace. Yet the group, nearly half, 49%, that they lied, lying to their parents is okay. And 61% had done so in the past year. Here's something that's pretty shocking, which I'm sure we're not surprised about. Um, almost between 30 and 80% of people uh, lie on their resume or job applications. And so digging a little deeper, you think it gets better with age? It really doesn't. Um, a survey by USA Weekend found that 70% of 13-year-olds would return an extra dollar mistakenly giving, given to them in change. Only 55% of 17-year-olds said they would do the same. Well, furthermore, in a survey conducted by the Girl Scouts of America, 65% of high school students reported they would cheat to pass an important exam, while only 53% of junior high school students and 21% of elementary school students would do the same. So my big question when I'm thinking about this, you know, if, if you're a cheater in, in junior high or high school um, or even in college, does that make you a cheater in the workplace? You know, uh, you know how do you control this? And so, you know, let's look at some more alarming data. Almost two out of five bosses, or 39%, fail to keep their word. One in four supervisors, or 27%, insulated those they supervised as coworkers. Only one in five, or 23%, blamed others for their mistakes. Almost one in three, or 31%, used the silent treatment to show displeasure. Um, all of these behaviors demonstrate that bosses lack personal values and personal ethics. And so, you know, what do we look for when we're when we're doing this and we're looking at, you know, high integrity organizations, you know, and, you know, I kind of list out these, the, you know, these certain attributes for the individual and the organization. Um, but, you know, here are some common situations that I think we all encounter. You know, the big lie justifies unethical actions, verbal or written contracts, obligate a person despite doubts. Roles are twisted to influence a person to act unethically. Vague rules justify unethical employee behavior or enable unjust management. And there's more and more and more that go on to this. So, you know, the new ethics paradigm, you know, I think understanding culture is key and it's often ignored. Um, I do think that based on this chicken drumstick thing, you know, I don't know, you know, this organization that manages these college students, this NASA, this NASA um um, not-for-profit that I found, uh, National Association of Collegiate um, Esports, I looked on their website, doesn't say anything about compliance and ethics. Really alarming to me. And so, you know, uh, you know I, I guess my advice here is, is that um, it, it's kind of interesting. I, I mean, I don't know how you determine, you know, if someone's, you know, if someone you're hiring was a cheater in their past life, but it certainly brings up the point that, we all keep talking about, you know, it's sort of the 10-80-10 rule. 10% of the people in your organization are ethical, 80% are situationally ethical, and 10% of the people are unethical and committing fraud right underneath your nose. So, you know, what does that mean? I think we just need to be really diligent, you know, diligent and diligent with regards to ethics and compliance programs. 
And, you know, we need to make sure. I, I think we have it right. I think the regulators have it right. I think they keep pushing. You know, when they're evaluating corporate compliance programs, I think there's a reason for all of this. And, you know, this really hit home for me because it made me think a little bit about, you know, that whole manifestation of people coming up through high school and college and are now in your workplace and the ones that are situationally ethical, how do you keep them, you know, within that particular box? You know, the 10% they're already committing fraud or unethical, there's really, you know, that's really a detection or prevention type of an exercise. You know, the 80% that are situationally ethical, you know, how do you really control or contain them? And it's, it just brings up a, a great topic for conversation. Uh, Jonathan Armstrong, we've had a question from one of our listeners. Uh, could you handle that for us? Yeah, we've had a few, actually, and uh, I guess thanks for all of them. Uh, one of them is around uh, what are the lessons to be learned from solar winds, and will ha that have a permanent uh, place in uh, compliance uh, agendas? And the yeah. other one is uh, should consumers' inform information be protected and should there be time limits on that? Uh, I suppose I've got a quick view on both. The, the second one first, I think, in GDPR and in UK GDPR as well, there are uh, limits on holding consumer data. They're somewhat vague. They say you can only hold the data for so long as is necessary, and it has to be accurate and up to date. So I think we are seeing an increasing uh, conflict, if you like, which we've had forever, of the type of things Jonathan Marks has talked about, about big data and sweating data for trends, versus that conflict with privacy and deleting data when it's no longer needed. And you do get that conflict in things like investigations in France, for example, where the French regulator says, as a rule of thumb, data should be destroyed two months after the investigation is over. But as far as uh, general consumer information is concerned, then that is protected. As far as SolarWinds is concerned, for those of you who haven't followed that story, it's a supplier to many corporations of software that helps uh, uh, manage their uh, online threat landscape, if you like, and that software was itself compromised. I guess it might be another topic that we could return to in a future podcast, Tom, but I think there is a real inequality at the moment uh, in the cybersecurity world between two or three nations that are not only funding uh, state-sponsored attacks on corporations in the US, the UK, and in the West of Europe. But they're also, if you like, promoting cyber anarchy as well by uh, training people up who then work out that they can get better money working for African gangs or South American gangs or organized crime and they know that they're going to be protected by the state. So whilst they're working, if you like, for private enterprise, not for government, they're being protected by the state because that's a way of fermenting discord. And I think SolarWinds has taught us those dangers, really. And sometimes, of course, the targets of these attacks are governments, not corporations. But all too often, corporations are collateral damage in those attacks. So that's a whistle stop to both questions. And I guess we, we thank the questioner for both. 
So that question was Nick Kroll, and Nick also put a link into the Netflix uh, presentation on Varsity Blues, the college cheating scandal. It's an excellent uh, program, so thanks to Nick for pointing that out. And for listeners, if you're on Netflix or have that available to you, I would heartily suggest you check it out. Gentlemen, we are now to our fan favorite uh, part of the show, rants and shout-outs, uh, perhaps other than listening to Mike Volkoff's college uh, shenanigans. It, it's going to be uh, – that might be the most favorite part of a show going <laughs> We'll save that for another episode. Uh, we're going to go in the same order. So, uh, Mr. Armstrong, you have a rant and or shout-out. It's a bit of both, I suppose. Shout out to the BBC. Um, most of the mainstream media, other than the Murdoch-owned, uh, uh, what would you call them, output, and the BBC on Sunday ran a story which sort of wasn't news about Boris's, uh, you know, one-man US-UK trade deal who goes by the name of Jennifer Arcuri. And uh, she was somebody, it seems, that she's a, an American businesswoman. Uh, it seems that uh, Boris met her at a conference. She had been seen uh, leaving his premises on a number of occasions when he was uh, mayor of London. I think he'd admitted to having IT help desk services from her, uh, and that surprisingly turned out to be something of a euphemism for other things. And on Sunday, she uh, started her uh, her serialized story in a newspaper, uh, and she said that surprise, surprise, uh, it wasn't just the uh, the laptop she was looking at for him, and. Um, but the real scandal here, I suppose, is twofold. I mean, firstly, there's the fact that a serving prime minister seems to have misled the public. Uh, and secondly, the fact that Ms. Curry seems to have got well over £100,000 of public money uh, whilst she was having this relationship with Boris Johnson as mayor of London and then in his various uh, offices since. And my disappointment, I suppose, I'm normally uh, a big supporter of the BBC. I think they've got a very difficult job to do in getting the political balance right. They covered the story that everybody else, as I say, absent uh, w one set of outlets covered on Sunday. The BBC finally covered the story on Thursday after huge outrage on social media, and they tucked it away into a very odd story about uh, uh, the fact that the Conservative Party had funded Boris's legal expenses to defend himself from accusations that we now know were true. So it seemed to be an odd way of breaking their silence, but I'm particularly disappointed that the BBC didn't run the story on Sunday. It looks to be true. Uh, she um, has photographs in Boris's house whilst uh, some people report Boris's wife was away having cancer treatment. It doesn't sound uh, like a story that the Prime Minister is proud of, but that doesn't mean to say that the BBC should be silenced. 
Matt Kelly. Yeah, I have a uh, shout out today on a somewhat serious and somber note, but a shout out nonetheless to Darnella Frazier. And if uh, that name rings a bell or even if it doesn't, you should know the name because Darnella Frazier is the now 18 year old woman who shot the video that most of us have seen of George Floyd when uh, police officer Derek Chauvin put his knee on uh, George Floyd's neck and ultimately George Floyd then died. Uh, so the trial for Derek Chauvin started this or this week in Minneapolis. And one of the first people to call to testify was Darnella Frazier. And she had said while testifying that since she recorded and uh, I guess uploaded the video, she spent many nights apologizing to George Floyd, wherever he may be now, that she did not do more. And I think we should just give a, a big debt of credit to Darnella for what she already did. Uh, what would ha have happened if people like her had not caught what happened that day on video and shared it with uh, potentially we've never have known about that particular incident. Um, but she has no reason to beat herself up, even if she's going to. She did a great service to the American public by recording that video, by sharing it and forcing all of us to confront what is still a very ugly part of uh, the American underbelly here. I don't know what the answer will be with the Derek Chauvin's trial or just the Black Lives Movement generally. But uh, we all owe her a big debt of thanks for re recording that video and sharing it with everybody and then testifying today. Um, however she might feel about what else she could have done. I don't know that she could have done anything more. She was only 17 at the time. But uh, good American. And uh, she did a great thing. And we should all be thankful for her help with us getting through this very difficult ordeal. Mike Volkoff. Uh, well, here, here, Matt. Uh, I, I've been watching the trial, and it's it's actually quite upsetting. And uh, there, not only was Darnell a, a hero, but there are other heroes as well who've mm -hmm. testified. And and the uniformity of the feeling of you know people that uh, that they felt guilty, you know, that they should have done something more is really just powerful to be in a position like that. And I, I thought, so, uh, I will tell you this, as a, as a trial attorney, I found the performance of probably both sides to be lacking um, in terms of the way that they're presenting this. But, uh, you know, all trial attorneys, when they watch somebody else do a trial, always think that they can do it better. But nonetheless, I, I, uh, it's been really a powerful trial. But uh, just to go to another topic, uh, here, here to the federal prosecutors handling the Matt Gates uh, investigation. I can't think of a better uh, subject, soon to be target of an investigation. Uh, and lo and behold, those, uh, how many times in political history have we seen those that go around proselytizing that they're holier than thou in some respects turn out to have their own sort of dark underside. Uh, and uh, I think uh, we, we should have known, uh, there's an interesting fact in the case that, you know, uh, the investigation started by, uh, was specifically had to be approved by uh, Bill Barr and was, and when there was a meeting on the Hill at which Bill Barr was supposed to go to, at which Matt Gates was going to be present, uh, Barr canceled his attendance at that meeting. Um, so that lets you know that even in December, 
of last year when this occurred, that the evidence against Gates was such that, um, you know, we're in this situation right now. They're trying to obviously flip this guy Greenberg, who is associated with uh, with Barr. I mean, not with Barr, with Gates. And what is funny is uh, each day this guy goes to bed, Greenberg, he, uh, and I say that facetiously, uh, he wakes up with uh, a superseding indictment with more charges. He, he, he went from 12 to 33 charges in the space of uh, two superseding indictments. So I uh, can't think of a better target. And if there's anybody who I would uh, think would be the most gleeful, it would be uh, Liz Cheney. Uh, yeah. who I'm sure is enjoying it. And I, I have a special place for Liz Cheney because when I represented uh, Alex Vindman and after he was attacked uh, viciously by Fox News as a spy, a Ukrainian spy, um, he, uh, that night and after, you know, it come out about this, uh, Liz Cheney actually called uh, Alex Vindman's mother, I mean wife, and said and apologized and told her and wanted to know if she could help the family in any way. So Liz Cheney, no matter what your politics may be, uh, to me, I've always uh, sort of defended her as a, as a really good person. And I thought that that showed uh, that she, you know she she did the right thing then. And I think that Matt Gates going into her district in the way that he did, she she must be enjoying this uh, this incident right now. Of Marks. I have a rave and a rant. I'll make them quick. So my rave is for special agent, uh, well, I, now I'm going to lose her name, uh, Carrie Harney out of the FBI Tampa's field office for basically busting a Ponzi scheme related to concert investments, which turned out to be about $20 million. Uh, Andres Fernandez was a concert promoter and basically duped people into you know, guaranteeing them 100% return on their investment. And I think the FBI did a, a, a great investigation there. And, um, you know, I, I think that special agent uh, Haney did a, did a great job in, in, you know, pulling all the pieces together. So that's my that's my rave. And my rant is, you know, what I talked about before. You know, I would have thought the National Association for Collegiate Esports would at least come out with some type of press release, you know, you know talking about this, you know, chicken drumstick thing and how they do not condone cheating or some type of ethical stance you know it just surprises me and continues to surprise me you know the, the the way higher ed treats some of these situations and you know even though this is not related specifically to a um you know one particular college or university you know esports is a growing field in the college environment and i would have thought that the governing body would at least come out and have addressed this i have not seen anything i looked if there's something out there i sincerely apologize but you know, I don't know who's doing their press. Maybe we should call Rich Levick and, you know, <laughs> tell them how to how to write a press release or deal with this particular crisis. But, you know, certainly something that really upset me. I have a shout out to John Boehner, former Speaker of the House, who gave a lengthy in interview in uh, for Two Politico, which has published the article. And there's one quote that struck me as perhaps the gold of all time. Quote, there is nothing more dangerous than a reckless asshole who thinks he is smarter than everyone else. Ladies and gentlemen, meet Senator Ted Cruz, end quote. <laughs> Thank you, John Boehner. 
<laughs> Gentlemen, it's been a ton of fun, and I look forward to getting back together. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks everybody. Thanks, Tom. Bye, guy. Bye, now. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. We've listed the contact information for all of the participants in the show notes. So if you have any questions on anyone's commentary, please contact them directly. Also, we will be live streaming this show for the foreseeable future. Uh, Please check us out on LinkedIn or Facebook. Uh, I put out announcements with the date and time. So I hope you will join us for a live stream presentation of Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.